Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Wesco. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 12th episode of 2023. Before I, we kick off, I'd like to thank Wesco, the platinum sponsor for Fiber the Breakfast, and our gold sponsors, Nokia and Vetro. On next Wednesday, the 29th, the Fiber Broadband Association will be hosting Fiber Day on the Hill in Washington, D.C. in the Rayburn Building. Our goal is to set the record straight and educate members of Congress and their staff on the capabilities, performance, and necessity of fiber to close the digital equity gap for generations to come. This event's gonna feature five interactive demonstration stations presented by the FBA members that show that fiber is and how it improves U.S. households, communities, and the economy including facilitating 5G, precision agriculture, education, healthcare, and the economic opportunities. Also, our next regional Fiber Connect workshop and train the trainer class will be in Oklahoma City on April 6th. You know, these workshops have been incredibly popular, uh, so please register today. You know, I just found out last night that our hotel is now sold out, and so we're working on identifying some additional nearby hotels. So please register, and then also, Registration is now open for our regional Fiber Connect workshop in Austin, Texas on May 16th. Again, you know, these workshops and hotels sell out really quickly, so please register early. You know, that brings us to today's Fiber Breakfast session with our good friend Jeff Hainan of Deloro to discuss fiber history in the making based on his most recent research. You know, last week on Fiber Breakfast, we heard from Joey Winder, the director of the Capital Projects Fund with the U.S. Department of Treasury. And he discussed the Treasury's multi-billion dollar investment in broadband. Yeah, Joey, it was a fantastic session. He's such a great guy and so fun to talk with. Um, And Treasury's about halfway through awarding its $10 billion uh, broadband funding for fiber projects. So if you haven't applied, you better hurry up and apply because it's going quick. That brings us to today's Fiber Breakfast session with Jeff Hainan the Vice President for Broadband Access and Network Home Network Market Research with Del Oro. Today's topic is fiber history in the making based on his most recent research. You know, now that the final numbers are in, Jeff is gonna share with us just how big a year it was for fiber equipment purchases in the US and what the future holds for new technologies, including, you know, five gig and 50 gig and 100 gig pond. Jeff joined Del Oro Group in 2018 and is responsible for broadband access and home networking market, fixed wireless infrastructure and CPE market research programs. Jeff expanded the broadband access and home networking areas include fixed wireless, CPE, virtual CCAP, remote PHY, remote MAC PHY, you know, CAPA has such great acronyms, you know, (laughs) DOCSIS 4.0 infrastructure. Uh, Jeff has written articles and white papers and his research and analysis have been widely cited in leading trade and business publication. Jeff is a frequent expert judge, including at um, the Fiber Connect conference and invited speaker, including Fiber Connect at conferences and events. So with that, 
Welcome, Jeff. And for our audience, please type in your questions as we go, and we'll work them in the Q&A at the end. With that, I'll turn it over to Jeff. All right. Thanks, Gary. Always good to, to be a participant here and to, to share the numbers and, and just give you all context, give all your members and uh, attendees a little bit of context for where the market is and, and where it's headed. Um, so let's, uh, uh, let's skip to the next slide, please. You know, last year, I think about this time, I was uh, kind of giving a similar presentation uh, on this forum, and uh, well, we were talking about how big 2021 ended up being. Well, no, uh, no doubt uh, that 2022 was going to be uh, equally big. I just didn't, uh, and I don't think others expected it to be quite as big, certainly given what we were experiencing in the early stages with supply chain, labor constraints, and other things. Uh, however, uh, really, uh, it became clear throughout the, the early stages of 2022 that the demand for broadband, and in particular fiber broadband, uh, really just kind of trumped where uh, and, and really set a precedent over uh, some of those uh, difficulties that we saw. So what I'm showing here is just to, to give you some context about spending in the North American market from 2019 up to 2022, and you can see the step function increase in revenue and spend uh, that we saw in 2022, uh, an increase of 19%. Now, I've been an analyst for, uh, boy, 17, 18 years at this point, uh, and in a mature market like broadband, having multiple years of consistent year-on-year -year growth like that is very, very unusual. Uh, and so what that signals, obviously, and, and Gary, your members are seeing this too, I think, uh, is just a commitment to spending and uh, expansion projects, uh, as well as overbuild projects to get more fiber into the ground. Well, these numbers here in aggregate represent all the cable access infrastructure, all those acronyms that, that Gary mentioned at the outset, and all the associated CPE for, for pond deployments, uh, as well as cable, including DSL, although certainly DSL uh, over, those, over this same time frame from 2019 to 2022 has seen a roughly $1.8 billion uh, decline in terms of spending. Uh, and, and really, if I, were to, if I were to map the DSL spending and fiber spending in North America, you'd basically see that $1.8 billion shift from DSL spend over to fiber. Uh, so it's very clear that we've got overbuild going on as well as expansion. Um, the other thing I'll mention here with this data from North America is that North America, the growth here is far outpacing what we've seen in other regions. And up until 2021, that was never really the case. Uh, so again, what that shows is a, is a commitment by these operators to expand and get more fiber into the ground. So with that commitment uh, in terms of fiber, obviously uh, we're seeing uh, tremendous increases in the amount of pawn equipment that's being purchased uh, to support that connectivity. Um, in fact, OLT revenue uh, was up 15% in 2022, and that was after a 73% growth uh, in 2021, which is just extraordinary. So obviously, uh, operators purchasing the equipment and the infrastructure uh, as, and, and you know, the pawn, the pawn market is such that operators will buy the OLTs first, and then in subsequent quarters, you'll see the ONTs follow as they start to market the services that they have available in the regions, uh, and then start to turn up subscribers uh, by either doing the insta installs or sending them uh, sending them the ONTs for do-it-yourself installs. 
The other thing that's interesting here is that as, as we've had discussions with the equipment vendors as well as the operators, it's been pretty clear that the OLTs uh, have been less impacted by the supply chain issues uh, that we've seen. Uh, ONTs, uh, in, in terms of uh, subscriber connectivity, they do share, uh, in, in some cases, components with a lot of consumer electronics. Uh, and you know, certainly in 2020 and 2021, uh, those were the, the most difficult uh, uh, supply chains to reconstruct, uh, whether due to just demand uh, or whether due to fires at certain uh, plants, manufacturing facilities that impacted subcomponents, capacitors, and things like that that go into the ONT. So um, we're, we're getting the sense that those uh, supply chains are being uh, rebuilt um, and uh, that availability, certainly for to map uh, against subscriber growth, that the ONTs are going to be available for uh, operators to purchase. The other thing I like to show, uh, especially with respect to the North American market here, is just how much investment is being made in 10 gigabit uh, capable technology, specifically XGS PON. But I'm, I throw on here 10 gig EPON as well, uh, because that is currently the technology that's uh, in favor among cable operators. I, I certainly don't expect uh, cable operators to stick with that. Uh, certainly, however, right now, it's uh, 10 gig EPON and DOCSIS provisioning over EPON makes it a lot easier for the cable operators to uh, introduce those technologies as they migrate over to fiber gradually. Um, it makes it easier to introduce uh, from a management and provisioning perspective. Charter's uh, RDOF-based edge-out projects, for example, are very heavily 10 gig EPON-based. Um, but I, I certainly expect over time that those uh, same cable operators and, and smaller cable operators are already doing this now, uh, that they will uh, also move to XGS PON to take advantage of the, the volumes and the scale deployments and, and price benefits that you get uh, with those deployments. Um, so let's go to the, the next slide, please. And I'm, I'm kind of going through these a, a little bit fast because I know we have a lot of questions and uh, um, I, I like to spend some time uh, answering those questions as well, um, both on the, the, the telco fiber side as well as the cable side. So, um, you know, I mentioned uh, at the outset uh, that the, the ONTs uh, uh, were the ones that had been impacted most by the supply chain constraints. And, and we're certainly seeing that. You know, you, you look at how much uh, investment has been made in the XGS PON infrastructure, and you know, if you if you're thinking about a, a typical range of uh, 24 to or 32 to 64 splits uh, per OLT port, um, then certainly there should be far more far more uh, a far larger number of ONTs in the marketplace at this point for XGS PON, and and that's just not the case. Um, this, it's still ramping up. And certainly as operators uh, uh, complete their expansion and overbuild projects, um, as they begin to market services, we're gonna continue to see uh, heavy purchasing and heavy shipment volumes of those XGS units. And you can see the growth relative to uh, the, the traditional 2.5 gig GPON units uh, over the last few years. And I fully expect that in 2023, probably by the middle of this year, that in, at least in the North American market, that XGS units will surpass uh, these two and a half gig GPON units. Um, price points are coming down. I think that's an important part of it. And, and you know, keep in mind that for these XGS PON units, 
Um, they typically, uh, even the bridge units, have either a two and a half gig LAN port at a minimum or even 10 gig LAN port. So uh, those uh, certainly add uh, a good percentage of cost to the overall bill of materials. So those, those uh, price points uh, are beginning to come down, um, making it more uh, affordable for operators to buy these XGS PON units uh, in volume. So, you know, just as, uh, as soon as we start to talk about XGS PON and the, and the deployments there, we're already beginning to see uh, in some cases, particularly in North America, the market being seeded by 25 gig uh, capable ports. Now, I, I say that they're capable uh, because really the percentage of these ports that have been actually turned on to deliver services, to deliver revenue generating services is fairly limited at this point. Cost is an issue, of course. The ONT ecosystem uh, is just not there yet. Um, but I, I think it's important to note that you've got a, a, a growing number of cumulative uh, OLT ports that are being uh, put out into the network so that operators that prefer this upgrade path have that flexibility to, if there's a competitive response, for example, with DOCSIS 4.0, they could light up. Uh, these 25 gig ports and begin to offer symmetric 8 to 10 gig services uh, if they want to. We know of some operators that obviously are doing that uh, already today using 25 gig for symmetric 10 gig services. Now it seems, uh, it certainly seems uh, a bit overkill for our needs as users today, but you know, time and time again, it has shown that uh, if, if, if you give consumers uh, if you give consumers the bandwidth, they will find ways uh, to use it, even with improvements in video compression uh, and, and all of those things. We, there's a steady growth, uh, a CAGR of anywhere from 25 to 35% uh, consumption growth on the downstream side year over year, and that's not going to stop. Um, so right now, these 25 gig ports uh, in our discussions with operators are really being slated most, mostly for business services. Uh, but also uh, potentially mobile transport applications, um, and and certainly uh, as time moves on, uh, we'll see more and more of these be used for uh, high-end residential services. So uh, again, 10 gig uh, or XGS PON is really the technology of choice, I think, for this decade in terms of volume, uh, and certainly uh, 25 gig, and then we'll talk about 50 gig and 100 gig in a little bit. Uh, and what their roles are um, in the future. So we mentioned uh, cable operators, uh, and you know I, I've shown uh, this slide uh, around uh, in different forums, different venues. As a matter of fact, I, I shared it at the, the cable uh, next gen event last week out in Denver. Um, and I think uh, it, it ends up being a surprising uh, uh, number for uh, you know many attendees and, and people that follow the market at just how many remote OLT ports uh, that are specifically designed to fit into existing node housings or new node locations, obviously with a, uh, a new node housing to support uh, the, the power consumption and, and heat dissipation uh, requirements. But cable operators aren't, you know, they're, they're not sitting idly by and whether it's DOCSIS 4.0 um, for the larger operators or those smaller operators that have already overbuilt with fiber or are in the process of doing so, um, they are certainly, uh, you know, responding and, um, 
you know, making investments in their own fiber infrastructure. And a lot of them are doing this uh, through the use of remote OLTs, which allow them to, again, take advantage of their existing node locations, but then begin to peel off service groups, fiber service groups in maybe new neighborhoods from that existing node, where they might be still serving uh, uh, the existing neighborhoods with DOCSIS uh, 3.0 or 3.1 services. Um, so this is, for some operators, this is the node is their transition point from DOCSIS to fiber. And obviously we can, we can have that debate as to how quickly that's going to happen. So just kind of to wrap things up, I mean, clearly uh, uh, another record year for shipments. Um, I'm not really seeing things at this point slowing down. Um, certainly, I think the growth rates uh, in terms of overall purchasing are going to slow. They just they just have to. I mean, there is so much uh, capacity that's already been put into uh, into uh, the networks. Um, there's going to be more capacity added, certainly, as these expansion and overbuild projects continue. Um, but this year, I'm I'm kind of expecting uh, a, a mid uh, mid to high single digit growth rate for pawn equipment, uh, for example, for, for this year. So uh, the bead projects, uh, the ongoing uh, Treasury Department funding, RDOF, uh, all of these are, are, are still um, really uh, funneling down and filtering down to the equipment vendors that I track specifically. Uh, and, and certainly they've mentioned uh, you know, what their estimates are for revenue that's accretive based on those projects and um, so I think growth is is expected for this year you know as I mentioned one thing uh, that makes operators or helps operators feel more comfortable about this investment in fiber is the fact that the roadmap technology roadmap is extremely healthy they've got uh, you know a plan from if they want to do uh, two and a half gig today to 10 gig XGS pond to 25 gig and now there's 50 gig and 100 gig uh, technologies that are being worked on, uh, and, and so this isn't this isn't uh, there aren't concerns about regrettable spend or uh, you know capital that's going to go to waste because this roadmap is is healthy. The vendor ecosystem is clearly very healthy, um, and you know it's it's pretty obvious uh, that subscriber demand, uh, in addition to that, is very healthy. So for the remainder of this decade, we do see that XGS Pawn is going to be uh, the, the, the volume technology for scaled residential services uh, for this year. Um, as I mentioned before, I think there will be some operators that will deploy 25 gig PON for residential services in uh, situations where maybe they're in a, a very tight competitive environment and they want to uh, differentiate themselves based on speed offerings. Um, and and they, will, they will continue to do that throughout this decade. And, you know, when it comes to some of the new technologies, 50 gig pond, for example, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at maybe volume deployments in late 2025, early 2026, uh, but even potentially earlier in 2024 in, in China. Um, and then, you know, as we've seen uh, over many iterations of pond technologies, as China uh, has typically built out uh, their networks, um, then the, the vendor ecosystem uh, evolves from there. Um, and, and certainly there's a lot of work being done on the standards. 
50 gig is interesting because it it uh, it integrates some new technologies and certainly as you move to these higher speeds, um, but you're still operating within the same power budget, you have some uh, concerns and and so that's why this technology is still being worked on the introduction of DSPs or digital signal processors uh, to ensure the signal quality. That's kind of a new uh, a new piece uh, to the overall PON equation. Traditional PON technologies have not integrated DSPs before, so that, that's a bit of a change, and I think operators are really going to want to test this technology out um, and, and make sure that it fits within their uh, uh, and doesn't impact their existing optical distribution networks whatsoever. And finally, just as we start to talk about 50 gig, we're already talking about 100 gig options, and there are already a number of those on the table, including, again, a DSP-based single wavelength option. And, and you know, keep in mind that PON uh, has traditionally, a residential PON has traditionally been based on on single wavelengths. The only uh, the only variable there is NG PON2, which Verizon has used. Uh, that that uses a, a, a coherent, and and also coherent technologies are under discussion. Uh, for 100 gig and even uh, potentially 200 gig uh, speeds. Um, so, you know, coherent obviously introduces additional costs uh, because you have multi wavelengths, and certainly then you need ONTs to be able to distinguish between those wavelengths. Um, but again, I, I think there, there are extremely smart people, standards bodies that are already working on developing these technologies such that. For uh, the operators that are deploying fiber today, uh, these technologies will be ready for them when uh, when they need to upgrade and when they choose to upgrade. So I think that wraps things up for my prepared slides. Jeff, um, you always have such great information and um, you know really interesting. So one of the things that kind of surprised me is your comment is that U.S. growth is outpacing other regions. Uh, you know, I even saw that when Jamie was on from. Omnia that um, she even said that you know the U.S. is going to outpace China in pond growth, which who would ever thought that we could even com compare with China on their um, deployment. But what what what's going on in the U.K. Europe? I thought you know I thought everybody post pandemic would be deploying fiber like crazy. So what what's why is the U.S. outpacing everybody else? Well, certainly uh, we are seeing now uh, in the UK BT Open Reach, also the altnets that have been uh, pushing uh, uh, for fiber deployments there. Uh, Deutsche Telekom um, is really just beginning its process of moving over to fiber. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, you've you've got a, a whole mix still of of operators in in the European market. I think the competitive environment over there is just a little bit different. Uh, cable operators over there are not as committed, uh, at least from my perspective, to DOCSIS 4.0. Uh, many of them certainly are already at 1.2, uh, but they're doing so with DOCSIS 3.1. Um, some have gone to high split, but that's where they're maxing out. And so in, in many cases, the competitive environment and, and you know, the, the kind of war and threats that would, would drive you to invest more heavily are just not there. The other thing we have to factor in is that uh, although there are subsidies in, in some countries that are available, they're certainly not there to the extent that they are here in the U.S., uh, and, and certainly those are what are driving uh, the significant investments here. 
Yeah, I was just on a call yesterday. I'm going to be speaking in Madrid uh, next month, and um, my panelists were talking. And you know, who would have thought that Spain would have been, you know, kind of the forefront of getting fiber out? And then also, who would have thought that Australia would be such a mess? You know, but evidently, <laughs> political flip flops have really kind of disrupted their deployments. But um, you know, one of my buddies, George Nodder, you know, he reported from SCTE, and I'm going to quote him. He says, it's clear to us that nearly every cable operator is at the very least evaluating fiber. The vast majority of U.S. cable operators are applying for federal funding grants and describing fiber as the end game. But he notes that smaller cable operators have greater flexibility over build themselves with fiber for several advantages than you know, over the tier ones because, one, they're behind on 3-1 upgrades um, that you know is required for the path to DAA or operate operating DOCSIS 3.0. Um, they also have smaller footprints overbuild, and then they don't have these public shareholders that get unnerved by large CapEx projects. Um, and then the competitive magnitude is less. And they're convinced that subscribers don't need or want um, 4.0. So what are you seeing? I mean, you know, Jamie uh, Linderman was telling us that, you know, in 10 years that um, all cable operators will be over, you know, be on all fiber networks. Um, do you agree with that? And we're just debating the timing. Well, I, I think that I think all will have uh, some degree of fiber in their networks. Uh, I don't expect that uh, for the tier ones, uh, given the the path, uh, the upgrade path, and the investment that uh, the the likes of Charter, Comcast, Cox, and others are going to go through here. And to 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 your uh, quoting of of uh, George Nodder there, I mean I, I think he's right. I think certainly the the smaller operators are doing what other smaller telcos are doing and and taking advantage of the subsidy environment. And yeah, they absolutely have many of those have been at Doxis 3.0. Uh, their outside plant has been at 750 megahertz, and so the leap to 1.2 or, or potentially 1.8. Uh, that's a significant cost, and if somebody, you know, the federal government or, or state governments are going to subsidize your effort to move to fiber, why not take advantage of that now? Uh, so I think that's true. The scale of the tier ones, and uh, you know, I, I think makes that, and obviously the fact that they're they're publicly traded and have to answer to Wall Street and their investors, I think that makes uh, uh, makes for a big difference as to why they're following the DOCSIS 4.0 path. I think it's, you know, I'm I'm an analyst that covers all these technologies, so I think it's important to note that Doc, DOCSIS 4.0 uh, introduces, and the upgrade uh, to DOCSIS 4.0 introduces new technologies in the outside plant that make it more reliable, HFC more reliable, um, and, you know, potent, uh, competitive with, uh, with fiber offerings, maybe not on the upstream side or for symmetric speeds. Um, but certainly in terms of reliability, uh, maybe not in terms of operational costs, uh, but again, in terms of reliability, latency, uh, it can be competitive. So I say that not to not to wave the flag of, of cable, but also just to say that, you know, it's it's there's a bandwidth war, of course, and it's not just going to be a bandwidth war. It's going to be how you package your services how you package a combination of latency and upstream speed, if that customer knows that, how you handle the home networking environment. These are gonna be the things that differentiate services and you know, help operators who have now these 
these fantastic fiber networks uh, continue to remain sustainable with subscriber growth and, and revenue. Well, Jeff, um, we've got a ton of questions. So I'm going to need you to follow up on some of these questions afterwards, <laughs> but I do want to sneak in one. Do you see any um, changes in government policy on the horizon that could accelerate broadband, like you know, permitting and streamlining permitting or slowing down deployment, such as like net neutrality, if we get a fifth commissioner? <laughs> I'm I'm not seeing uh, I'm not seeing that. Uh, what I obviously what I'm seeing now is is efforts to accelerate uh, the, the the bead funding process. Um, and you know I've certainly uh, I'm I'm hopeful that that uh, that happens so that the states that are ready uh, to start distributing these funds, the ISPs can do so. Um, the other thing I, I think is important is maintaining the, uh, the ACP, the Affordable uh, uh, Connectivity Plan. Um, you know, because we're, we talk about the technologies here, but bridging the digital divide isn't just a technology question; it's an affordability question. Uh, so we need to make sure that people can get connected and stay connected. Yeah, 100% with you on that. Well, Jeff, always love having you. Really appreciate you. Yeah, joining us and really appreciate your your work, your research and industry insights. Um, yeah, I did share with you a lot of people yesterday when I saw your chart on how much cable is deployed in fiber. That was kind of a shocking. We knew it was a lot, but didn't know it was that huge. So um, anyway, very interesting. Um, so I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. We're going to be discussing electric co-op broadband. Why make ready matters. Um, with Finley Engineering's senior consultant, Ryan Kududra, I probably said that wrong, as he discusses the broadband opportunities, including whole infrastructure participation in the key ingredients, what he calls the pancake mix for electric co-ops. So we'll see you guys next Wednesday. And again, thanks, Jeff. We really appreciate it. And we'll see if we can follow up on all these questions we didn't get to.